Hello and welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre for our period of reflection. Uh, <laughs> we will be reflecting the shit out of things. Um, I'm Dorian Linsky. Could, can I have a little cheer if you came to the last show on December the 2nd? Yay! It's happy days. Um, when we booked the show, we, we didn't really know how things were going to turn out. Uh, we are where we are. Tonight we're going to look back at the election campaign and the Remain campaign too. What do we do right? What do we do wrong? And what do we do next? plus the future of Labour and the things that are going to shape the 2020s. Brace yourselves. Uh, for old time's sake, we're going to play one last round of the nation's favourite party game, Leave or Remain. <laughs> play it with your loved ones at Christmas. And we'll have a special surprise too after the break. Uh, before we start, I just wanted to say that we began Romaniacs just before the 2017 election. When the Remain movement was in disarray, we were trying to analyse Brexit rather than planning to stop it. The hung parliament changed everything. For two and a half years, Remainers, like you lot, um, kept the hope alive. We had the historic marches. We had tireless campaigning. We had interventions to so many people, from Gina Miller, Yvette Cooper, to Dominic Grieved, and Oliver Letwin, Baroness Hale, to the beloved ERG and the DUP. <laughs> so we didn't leave in March. We didn't leave in October. We are now asteroids, barring asteroid strike, leaving in January. We put up a hell of a fight for longer than anyone predicted, and that is something to be proud of. Uh, joining us for Britain's most fun post-mortem are three of our regulars. Uh, he can cook, sing, act and write. He manned the Best for Britain War Room Twitter account throughout the campaign. That is you. He was briefly cheerful, now very depressed. Hello, Alex Andreu. <laughs> So in the I newspaper last week, you wrote that if we must lose, then let's lose badly. Well, you got your wish. Um, what was your crazed logic? Okay, so I didn't want us to lose. I was just saying of the possible results, if Johnson was going to get a majority, I thought it was a lot safer for him to get a sizable majority. So at least he wasn't subject to the whims of the ERG. It gives him some room to manoeuvre. And also it cauterises the opposition parties because there's no room to say, well, we sort of did better than we thought we would. You know, so I, I just thought it was a sticky plaster moment best thing would be to rip it off decisively. More like removing a leg, isn't <laughs> yes. it? Again, better to do it decisively and quickly, Dorian. Alex was also an army you don't paramedic, wanna... uh, so yeah, he knows you, this stuff. Well, you don't want to be sort of hacking at it with a butter knife, do you? For three days. That's not very good. Was it... Because um, some people said that it was, a, it was a shock, and yet the polls basically nailed it. And so I suppose there's an interesting lesson there about the psychology of hope that bastard emotion <laughs> um were, were you were you shocked no um my my prediction just before the exit poll was five or 65 because i thought those constituencies were either going to hold or they were going to tumble altogether i didn't see i didn't see the logic that wigan would go to the tories but dudley north wouldn't their message would either work or it wouldn't. So I thought they were either going to go wholesale or not at all. 
sadly wholesale. Yep. Also with us is the voice of reason, the editor of LSE Brexit blog, major Vampire Weekend fan, Roz <laughs> Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello. Where did you spend the most magical night of the year? <laughs> I spent it at the LSE because I was working, so no drinking, and I was handling the LSE, one of the LSE's social media accounts. So I was having to tweet all, no all night really impartial stuff about Brexit. And um, this, this was quite hard work. And at kind of one o'clock, I got a bit desperate, and I decided it was time to go to the Best for Britain party, which Naomi, our um, co-host, co uh, was, was running. And I thought, right, I'll just get on a night bus. Yeah, yeah. It's never that easy, is it? You wait half an hour for one, and then you can't get on it. Anyway, <clears throat> so I spent half, half another half an hour on a rammed night bus where everyone was going, fuck, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I turned up at the um, Best for Britain party, which was... Um, which was, which was, it was good to be among friends, let's say. Um, uh, and, uh, st uh, you know, stayed around, had a whiskey. Uh, and then I, I got an Uber home and it was a Polish guy. Um, so we had a chat about Brexit all the way home, which was good because apparently Uber bans religion and politics, uh, they're, they're cab drivers from talking about religion and politics. So it was really nice to kind of flout that and have a chat about, again, about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> well... You're going to have a great night. Yeah, I know. I love it. Um, well, you've just joined the board of the human rights organisation, Each Other. Yeah. Um, is it important that we should, in however way we can, throw ourselves into doing something for sort of, you know, emotional reasons? Yeah, I mean, you have to do it immediately. You can wait until after Christmas because, you know, we all need some time to, to recover from the horror. Um, but I think it is, um, it is pretty vital that you focus on a new goal and say, right, now, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I haven't got Remain necessarily anymore, but I have got this. Completing the team is a man who's literally fleeing the country this week. <laughs> He's got a book coming out in 2020 called How to Be a Liberal, which now needs to be twice as long because it's so much harder. <laughs> it's Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. Uh, so we're still going to read books in 2020. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure this is the best business opportunity I've ever embraced. Just write the highlights on a bus. <laughs> Drive around. And go, people are going, oh, John Stuart Mill. So this last few days, we've had the National Festival of I Told You So, and it turns out everybody was right all along. Who'd have thought? Um, and you said uh, earlier that we should listen to people who've got doubts instead. Um, do you think Romaniacs has been sort of self-questioning and, and doubtful enough? You've got to be careful with this. So like, especially liberals of any sort need to be careful with this because we have this sort of tendency to just be like, I wonder if that lives up to my values. I wonder if the bloke over there that said that he wanted to stab me in the face has been given enough time to express that view in a fair and legitimate way. And, so you're just like, and that obviously gets gamed against us quite a bit. Like the BBC is like an exhibit of, of how that is gamed against you, basically. So that you have to be careful there. We also have to be honest about the fact that there were structural disadvantages to us from the very beginning. Primary among them, the fact that the opposition party basically, in a functional way, did not exist. So when that's not there as a movement, it's very hard. It's very hard to try and secure any kind of change. And given the restrictions that we had, that we probably did about as well, what else could we do but a rearguard defence in Parliament, you know, against legislation? What else can you do apart from that? Well, it just strikes me that we didn't really have a lot of 
power. So when people said, oh, well, you know, what did the Remain campaign, you know, the Remain campaign failed, it was like, well, we really, we really didn't have a lot of levers. Yeah, is that what well, we had literally no, and no leader at all, really. No real time in media. I mean, media was always quite sneering and dismissive, despite the way that the government is now dressing it up as if the whole of the media has been pushing for Remain for the last three years. Most unspeakable, god-awful, shitful nonsense. <laughs> so there are obviously limitations on, on what we could do. However, when we're looking at the next five years, there are opportunities now that we're out from under that Brexit issue that we can see how is it that we can have conversations with people that do not involve being caught in the culture war. And that part, we need to think very, very fucking hard on how we do that if we don't want this kind of result to keep on smacking us in the face. Well, before we get into the election, uh, listeners often tell us the podcast has kept them sane, uh, which is nice. Um, but we should say it keeps us sane as well, and we would be much more, deme <laughs> We'd be more demented without it. Um, so it wasn't in doubt that we would keep going. We're not going to call it Rejoiniacs, because that's a bad word. Um, and a little premature. Um, but we probably will have to ditch, ho, hey, let's stay. And, and find a new motto. Maybe not, let's have some tough conversations. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, but we will keep going. So... So, where did it all go wrong, part one? Um, Roz, Blair... I hope you guys have been drinking, by the way. You're fucking... <laughs> I know, fucking I have. <laughs> Sorry, I was at the Best for Britain Christmas lunch, so I am blotto. <laughs> what you don't know is that Alex has never done one of these things sober. So... <laughs> That's not true. What, you think I go around like this the whole time? <laughs> Uh, Roz, um, Tony Blair warned uh, that this election was a, an elephant trap and don't walk into it. And everybody went, fuck you, Blair, we're doing it. Um, now there's... Ah! <laughs> oh, no! You were wrong about Iraq! Um... <laughs> there were lots of kind of... There's many, many, many counterfactuals. Um... But, Roz, let's start. Were the Lib Dems and then Labour um, wrong to permit the election? Did they have... Were there other options once Johnson had his deal? I think we're reaching the end of the road, quite frankly. And it, it pains me to say this, but, yeah, it was an elephant trap. But, um, you know, the elephant had been blundering around for a long time. It had the, it had the chance to... You know, we had indicative votes. Um, Parliament could have gone for a second referendum. It could have gone for... A number of options. It didn't. It wouldn't. It couldn't reach. It couldn't reach a consensus on what to do, and you got to the point where it was just. It was just hard to see how Parliament could stagger on any longer, um, and we could carry on just kind of trying to find legal loopholes that would delay it any longer. And so I do think that, unfortunately, as as, as Alex has implied, it, it was just like chopping a leg off. It, it was bound to happen. Uh, did you do it sooner or did you do it later? That's quite hard to chop an elephant's leg off. Um, yeah, yeah. You just um, get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Piece of piss, mate. Um, get elephant leg off done. <laughs> um, Jonathan Liss, a former Romaniacs guest, best for Britain uh, ally, argued that an October election, which remember there was that option, um, would have gone differently because... 
But I do remember the I do remember the poll saying actually that it would be you know that if he didn't meet the if Johnson didn't meet the October thirty first deadline that would you know that would sort of finish him and so so you know is that just is that just hindsight talking do you think yeah. he really could have yeah. been stopped then it's just it's just hindsight talking I mean it's understandable and people love you know, counterfactuals and they love to say well if we'd done this it would have been different I mean the fact is that the electorate had to choose a new parliament in some way because we had reached an impasse frankly and there was very little much more we could do and given that the choice the choice was available we all knew or suspected that they would go for Johnson over Corbyn and they did and it was just a question of when not if and I suggested in fact Alex's I think suggested slogan for a people's vote RIP was uh make it stop um do you think, did the Tories sort of steal our idea by, by sort of rebranding Brexit from a kind of wonderful, you know, patriotic opportunity for buccaneering Britain to just some horrible nightmare that needs to be got out of the way? Because that seemed to be, that seemed to be a very strong emotional message. Not get Brexit yeah. done because it's great, just get it done. Yeah, and the reason it worked so well for Johnson is that he is the man who brought Brexit about more than anybody else. And so it therefore, in a kind of appalling logic, which I struggle to live with, but it, it is, is unfortunately true, it made sense to the electorate that he was also the one who could, who could get it done. Um, and I think that even unconsciously, that was what the, the electorate assumed. He's created it. Whatever it's going to turn into, he, he's, he's got to deal with it now. He's got to get it done or screw it up or whatever. I and there's this awful yeah. kind of Greek inevitability, which I've talked about before, about the whole, of the whole thing. That's Alex's nickname, the Greek inevitability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, Labour took a pounding in the north um, due to a sort of combination of Corbyn and Brexit. Obviously, uh, Corbynites are keen to blame support for a second referendum. Um, but Labour, it gets, very, it gets very complicated. To which I say, ha! <laughs> Labour did lose more votes nationally to remain parties than to leave parties. Obviously, different constituencies that played out in different ways. But was there an alternative position that kept one end of the coalition, your kind of uh, liberal city people um, and, and the Red Wall people. Was, was there any better I mean, policy by that point? I don't know. Uh, I mean, the answer is probably some leadership might have done it. <laughs> I don't know. You know call me crazy. No, it, the, the country is split down the middle. And the reason we've had three years of impasse and we've been able to battle and defer Brexit is because there are many flavours of Brexit and Brexit has found it difficult to unite behind one of them. In the meantime, Remainers, there are also many ways of getting to that and they've also struggled to unite behind one solution. The moment one of the two got one leader to unite behind, the other side was screwed. It was as simple as that. And it, they, you know, everything we did, everything we did with Best of Britain, everything we do with podcasts, with campaigning, with marching, it's all pissing in the wind if you, if you can't point people to one person to put their cross against. If you don't have the alternative to, to Johnson, you know, all the campaigning in the world won't help. 
is it sort of fanciful to think that without the Brexit, without, the, say, the second referendum, um, without Brexit, that Corbyn would have, um, a Labour Party led by Corbyn, would have reached those people? It seems to me that there is a kind no, of... of course The not. cultural objections to Remainers and to Corbyn are quite similar. You know, there aren't that many Lexiters in Britain. And it seems that the things that they didn't like would have been just directed at Corbyn. The, I mean, the, the, the problem is that the backbone of the Labour Party it has always been quite, not nationalistic, but patriotic, you know. And in Corbyn, you have someone who looks as if he's not patriotic. As a matter of fact, on any binary choice, he thinks Britain did the wrong thing. Um, and on many occasions, he might be right. But how you put that across as a leader, there are ways of doing it and, and ways of not doing it. That's why all this stuff about how he laid the wreath at the Senate, that's why all that stuff cuts through. Because there's basically a, deep, a deeply held suspicion that he doesn't like this country. And, you know, so the moment you, you pitch that against someone who says, I think you're great. I mean, it's... A Greek inevitability. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's elementary stagecraft, isn't it? It's just like, I, if we come on stage here, we go, thank you to the audience. Yeah. We don't just go, wow, oh, you've done some You're really rubbish. bad things. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. You can improve under our leadership. Look at that man, really. <laughs> Look at that man. He, he's gone catatonic. <laughs> he was literally just staring in the middle distance. <laughs> Um, Ian, the scale of deception and disinformation this time was, was extraordinary. Do you think this is... But was it an extraordinary election? Or do you think this is going to sort of set the tone for future elections? Does, say, what happens in 2024 depend on how the kind of Johnson government shakes out? No, this, is, this is totally the way that they're going to do business now. Why the fuck would they do it any other way? It worked, right? It works. Like, the scale of the lies is fucking astonishing. To, to watch them release... Information on immigrants that only cost, that only looks at the cost to the taxpayer of immigration rather than the benefits it brings. It's just a fucking lie. It's a lie about people. To watch them act as if these little troll bot accounts that put out nonsense about a child on a hospital room floor are somehow disconnected to them is fucking nonsense. To watch them come out and start talking to Kunzberg, to Peston, making up stuff around someone getting punched outside of a hospital because you were trying to distract from what happened is nonsense. And the, the great sort of towering message of the whole campaign, get Brexit done, is also a fucking lie. So what have they learned? They have learned that lying relentlessly, day after day after day, it works. And they are going to keep on doing it. That's why one of the things that we're going to be facing over the next five years isn't even great, like, oh, we're going to fight for our political value. We're going to have to literally fight for the concept of objective truth. That is how bleak things have got. Do you know who cared a lot about objective truth? Yeah, there was a bloke that wrote this book. You'd, you'd like him, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a good writer. He's uh, called George Orwell. Yeah. He'd be fantastic. Um, so the, the, kind of, the, the thing with Johnson is, because he has no principles or values, um, 
you don't quite know what he's going to do. And some you know, people like Nick Cohen have been writing that we're into for four, five years of kind of, you know, hard right Toryism unbound. Other people are suggesting that because they've now got all these new seats, these new constituencies, which are, you know, hurting, and they are kind of largely more sort of working class, more left behind, if you want to put it, um, and that the culture war stuff probably won't be all they want. They might actually want something that helps improve their lives. Um, do you, so it might push the Tories to, to, to sort of be a little less uh, aggressive in free market. Is that, is that just sort of fanciful? I do, I do think that they'll... Thank you, sir. Would you like to come on stage? <laughs> uh, and I, I do think that they probably will be a little bit less free market. I think that they've got a kind of really sort of lukewarm... Keynesianism light sort of thing going on there, and they recognize that. Um, what they don't have is anything like the technical or even just the attention span interest to be able to fix the problems in those communities. Right? Which, start, I mean, you know, at most, like the most complex their fucking thinking gets about towns like that is like, maybe if we put a rail line there. And you think, like, well, actually, that would fucking help. Like, I mean, transport is one of the yeah. first things that you do, but it's not the end of the fucking story. Like you have to start talking honestly about how bad this country has been historically at reskilling. We are shot. I mean, no one's great, but we are fucking shockingly bad at it. Unbelievably bad. And yet, do you for a single second think that Dominic Cummings is sat there going, oh, I wonder how we're going to fix reskilling? Is he my ass? He's basically sat there going, like, someone once said a bad thing about me in the foreign office, so now I'm going to turn it into the fucking MTV department. Like, he's, <laughs> he's basically, like... He's point, like, he's not going to think about this. Often, so they're obviously not going to improve their lives. And then what they're going to find, again and again, is that the culture war is what works to bring those voters together underneath them. And that's what they're going to do again and again. And so now that we've got, we've got this chance, because the only glimmer of fucking goodness that we get by, the, by losing on Brexit is that that is no longer a pivot that can be used against us to go, well, you're just metropolitan elite, metropolitan elite, blah, blah, blah. So now we've got a chance. However, they will find another pivot because it's through that pivot that they win. It's never going to be by improving people's lives. It's through the culture war pivot. And that's the thing that we're going to have to figure out ahead of time mm. how we get out from under it. Ros, what, I mean, the Remain campaign was a significant movement. What effect do you think it's had on, on British politics? I mean, when the, when the fight, it seems like the political fight now is going to be over, you know, Bolsover and, and sort of smaller, smaller towns. Um, this is predominantly urban, dare I say, quite middle class. Um, our party's sort of interest, and in but there's a lot of us. Um, are the parties going to be interested in sort of courting us in five years. Nobody, nobody's talking about that right no. now. No, and, and you know what? I'm, I'm not too bothered about that. Um, and I'll tell you why, because I'm not very interested in the courting us. Um, I think it comes back to something Alex was, was saying um, recently about how revolutions are feared by the poorest people because it's them who suffer most from them. And likewise, it is going to be the poorer people, not us, you know, often middle class, cosy, metropolitan, liberal, elite, Romaniacs, who are going to suffer most as a result of this government. And so what we should be thinking about now and what we should be building on is thinking, well, yeah, the last three years have been totally shit in many respects. But on the other hand, 
I do now know what the Supreme Court does. Um, you know, I understand more about parliamentary procedure. Um, I know an awful lot more about the EU than I did three years ago, and I think that goes for all of us, um, even, even the most ardent Remainers. And that's a great thing, because someone has to do that, and not everyone can. Not everyone has the bandwidth, has the, you know, the mental capacity, the strength, the, the everything else to, to, to do that kind of, to think about that kind of stuff. And we shouldn't be kind of ashamed of that. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's okay to be a girly swat. Uh, it, it's okay to to think about this stuff and to worry about this stuff because this stuff is going to be crucial when it comes to reigning in Johnson because we do still have our institutions. We do still have a Supreme Court. We do still have Parliament. And we need to know about how it works. So that is why I, I'm not too bothered if they don't court us. Uh, what I'm worried about, which I'll probably talk bang on about later, uh, is if we stop caring and if we disengage. So, like, so Remain 2.0 is, is sort of over. Um, what do you think is sort of more dangerous for Remainers? Is it like a protracted period of mourning and despair? Or you're the opposite and just sort of jumping straight back into another battle without the requisite period of reflection? Um, I think big danger is a, a sort of rejoin movement that, comes too early, I think that will, that will make us look like, you know, we've lost twice, but we don't get the message sort of thing. Um, and I think it's too soon for it. And I think actually getting into it too soon can kill it forever. I think what we need to do is we need to find a way to both give Brexit space to happen um, and fail. While, while at the same <laughs> what? well uh, as opposed to as opposed to whinging from the sidelines which is the other option that remains while at the same time we need to be tackling the underlying things that made it happen and i think if you want to channel your energy somewhere then those are the areas to go so social media reform media accountability all of, the, all of the stuff that facilitated what's happened in the last three years, the BBC Charter, all of this stuff, we need, to be, we need to be starting grassroots campaign that will be heard in those debates because it's those debates that matter further down the line. Um, uh, you know, joining Labour to... Well, well, we'll get on to that. Well, sure, but anyway, you know, getting involved in local politics... At, you know, in the local elections coming up, council level, those are the, the positions that matter now. That's why, that's why all the Northern Irish parties have suddenly become interested in Stormont again, because they understand that right now they have no power in Westminster, and the only lever of power they have is Stormont. And it's the same for us. Right now, we lost that battle. We don't have any power in Westminster. But there are plenty of pressure points around hmm. in local elections coming I do up think, in six I mean, months. I, I thought one of the best sort of tweets I saw immediately after the election was journalist Amelia Tate going, okay, now the we're not going to have a Labour government that's going to be able to address certain things. And she was just going, somebody like, see if you can volunteer at a food bank. So yeah. there's really like practical, I mean, there's nothing to do with Brexit, but you know, there's, there's sort of practical things you can do. But then like you said, there's also different kinds of, of politics. And I suppose that when we've been waiting so long to see what happens at the very 
top rung of politics, then now's the time to think, okay, well, that's done for a while. So let's find other things where you can actually feel like you're contributing to just trying to make things better. Ian, what would you, uh, what would you recommend would be the kind of the, the, the best places for you to put their energies? Fucking hell. Um... First of all, I mean, we'll talk about it later. But the, that the... was completely unnecessary swearing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do you even, believe... do you even you? know me? <laughs> um, okay, no, it's it's a big question. Is the problem? Um, so the, first of all, there's the joining labour and trying to control it. But let's just put that to one side because I think we'll talk about it later. Um, then the thing I sort of end up saying to people is just pick the thing that you really care about. Like if you and ob- it's a, like obviously this is what I'm going to say because it's quite, you know, obviously this is the thing that I really do give a shit about, but if you want to think I am going to protect immigrants in this period, go join some of the groups that represent them. So the three million represent European citizens. Exactly. <laughs> may well be some supporters here already. Um, the British in Europe represent Brits in Europe, the clues in the name. Um, and they've really hardly been talked about, right? Like, I mean, they got mentioned a bit at the beginning when Theresa May and Liam Fox were like, well, there are human bargaining chips that we can... But beyond that, there was no fucking moral commitment to them whatsoever. Completely forgotten. And not treated that well, and actually under considerable uncertainty. There's a Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, the JCWI, which does fucking brilliant work. There are countless organisations doing the legal fight on individual cases. People who are just taken away and put in detention. People who are stripped of any right to claim benefits while they're fighting a case that is legally legitimate on its own terms. Like, this is the stuff you can go and you can help with. And you don't just have to go help in a legal way. You don't just have to help with money. You can also help by cooking for them. You can help by being there to, to sort of man the creche when the, when the parents are having the meetings with the lawyers. There is stuff that you can do there. Right. Now, over and over with different groups in different areas, you find the thing that you care about, you join that group, and you take the fight to them. Exactly. One thing you could do is play Leave or Remain. Um, so the only good thing from Brexit is that I'll never have to play this fucking game again. We're going to start with uh, the Greek inevitability. Alex, <laughs> your, your category is animals, irrespective of where they live in the world or their nationality status. Are the following Leave or Remain? It's a very, it's, it's very, it seems fun, but it's actually very serious. So. <laughs> Giraffes. Um, Remainers. They look down on everyone. <laughs> Am I right? Alex Andreu's one-man show will be coming soon. <laughs> uh, foxes. Um, uh, urban foxes remain. Uh, country foxes uh, uh, leave. Uh, Lo- they strut around, they shit everywhere. London pigeons. Oh, leave for sure. <laughs> They're actual ukippers. <laughs> uh, blue whales, the largest mammal in the world. Um, remain, I think. They don't like change, do they? <laughs> what? Uh, this is so fucking weird. <laughs> no, but he's thought about no, it. I'm he's serious. He, I it's a serious exercise. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Some people take it serious. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you, Alex. Thank, thank you. Cats. Um, strong leavers until you open the door. Strong remain afterwards. <laughs> no. 
Don't want to. Uh, cats, me- uh, nemesis, mice. Oh, remainers, I think. Quite cosy. Don't like to wander off. Uh, dogs. Uh, the, well, the politic answer is to say they're remainers, but they're not, you know. But they're they're leavers. They're totally They're leavers. They just get very excited. <laughs> and then they catch the car, and <laughs> you get Marc Francois. <coughs> I don't know. A wolf. <laughs> Marc Francois is the closest we've come to actually electing a literal dog um, parrots, finally. Oh, uh, Brexiters, for sure. They just repeat the same, the one thing, <laughs> the one line they've learned. Yeah. Like, get Brexit get done! Brexit <laughs> <laughs> and then Cummings come, comes on and gives them a little cracker. <laughs> Good. After that palate cleanser, let's move on to our second subject, which is labour and the, um, the fate of Corbynism. <laughs> All right. All a right. Labour leave or remain? Is that we the question? Have to <laughs> we'll never know. Um, so it's an existential uh, shock for traditional Labour supporters. The Red Wall fell. Trauma for young momentumites and the old left campaigners with the party's worst results since 1935. Um, let's sort of, I'd like to start maybe with the, with the contactical voting, where basically we kind of felt that there was no way Labour were going to win majority. The only thing to do was tactical voting. And on the night, kind of seat after seat, I mean, Canterbury was, I think, one of the exceptions, but, but seat after seat, it just didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Was, were we putting too much faith in the, a majority of voters really thinking very hard about this, really being very, very shrewd, completely overcoming any kind of instinctive hatred of Corbyn or Lib Dems? You know, did, did, did we perhaps hope too much, given the, the history of tactical voting is, is not that um, consistent? Yeah, what else have you got? You know, yeah. by the time it happens, it's not like any, anyone involved in tactical voting thinks, oh, this has a tremendous history of success in British elections. <laughs> you know, it's just like, no, you know it, but what, what else have you got? Like, the time was, when, would they work together? The crucial point was, would they work together? And it became pretty clear over the course of the year that they were just functionally incapable of doing that. You know, not just lay, but you can't just lay the blame at their door because fuck knows what Joe Swinton's been doing. Over. I mean, I kind of get the, you know, you've got to win all of these English seats where they're wary of Corbyn. Corbyn, as a person, made that much more difficult than it would have been if it was someone who was more palatable to Middle England. But nevertheless, she really went fucking further than she had to. Jesus Christ. She made it impossible. And of course, Corbyn makes it impossible because Labour's not interested in working with fucking anyone. You know, they're tribally incapable of doing it. So on that basis, you've got nothing else but tactical voting. And as it happens, I think we did better with tactical voting this time than we've probably done, I mean, as far as I'm aware of, in any other election in this country's history. It's just that, you know, we, doing we best in tactical uh, voting is a pretty low bar. We did some work with Best for Britain. They're still working on the data, actually. They'll release a report, I think, next week. Um, they, and there was more tactical voting than any other election. We actually pushed it 5% higher than in 2017, which is a huge amount. And, and actually, in the seats where it fell short is because they had underestimated, the MRP had underestimated uh, how many votes Corbyn was going to lose to the Tories, if that makes sense. Right. So it's that move. 
that scuppered it completely. I think, I think uh, considering how unpopular Corbyn was and considering how unpopular Swinson was by the end of the campaign, because her personal ratings were also very, very, very low, I think it's a miracle anyone tactically voted, frankly. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm astonished that it did as well as it did. The conditions could not have been worse yeah. for tactical voting. Well, yeah, you'd expect them to just yeah. tactically stay in bed that day. <laughs> it was I know I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ros, I want to ask you this, um, related to the Lib Dems, is that one of the kind of um, straws that kind of Corbynites were grasping for was like, well, the centre collapsed, look at the Lib Dems, you know, 11 seats or whatever. Um, Tories, uh, some of you may already know all these, these figures, but Tories only added 300,000 votes across the country. Labour lost 2.5 million. The Lib Dems added 1.5 million. Their vote share increased almost as much as all the other parties put together. Um, First past the post crucified them. Obviously, Jo Swinson lost her seat. Um, but I mean, if you just look at the kind of, if you look at the numbers, the, the, the whole idea that the kind of, you know, that the revoke destroyed them and that they had this awful time, nobody wants to vote for them, seems to be sort of contradicted. Is there something to be taken? Is there some sort of comfort to be taken from that? I mean, how, how many of those one and a half million do you think were just tactical votes? Well, it's impossible to say, but I mean, I think the idea that people abandon the centre, as, I, as I've heard quite a lot in the last few days, is rubbish. There just wasn't a viable centre uh, candidate to vote for. And even if, you know, you consider Swinson a viable central, uh, centrist candidate, um, we all knew she was never going to be PM. And the chances of her even being PM, even in the event that she did do a deal, with Corbyn was still very, you know, was st still minuscule. So, you know, it, it's not, you can't make grand assumptions, grand assertions about the lack of uh, Britain's inability to, you know, disinterest in, in, in centrism from this election because you're, you've got le uh, leaders and one leader in particular who is widely seen as being toxic. So it's just, it, it's just not uh, possible to extrapolate mm. and to make that claim. Um, Ian, I wrote a piece where I was sort of saying, okay, what can be salvaged from Corbynism? There was some, obviously some good, you know, galvanising, particularly young people. There was some, some really good policies. Boy, were there a lot of them. Um, it was like, I'm full, thank you. And it was like, more policies for you. <laughs> you crouched over the toilet bowl, vomiting policies. But some of them were good. Um, but then you see that kind of Rebecca Long-Bailey is the favourite for next leader, and there are rumours that she would keep on Carrie Murphy and Seamus Mill, which just perhaps, <laughs> perhaps less, lessons not being learned at quite the rate one would wish. Um, is there a kind of danger that they are just going to carry on regardless? I, don't, I was going to say one more heap. I don't even know what this is based on except a an unwillingness to kind of face reality or give up power in the party. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you think there is a real danger that we will just have, like, continuity Corbynism, which doesn't really address any of the problems? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't end up being a Trotskyist for the last 40 years of British history because you're looking carefully at the evidence of what works with the electorate. <laughs> you know... Uh, Ouch! <laughs> You know, this is what these guys do, man. They don't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck. They can't, they can't give a fuck about people. They can't really give a fuck about people if this is still the shit that they're putting forward for us to eat. If they really want to win power, if they actually wanted to help people's lives rather than their doctrinaire fucking horseshit, 
then this would not be the kind of proposals they were putting forward. You look at those, look at those two. It's just like, that's not the problem, isn't it? They're Corbynites. Well, <laughs> that doesn't fucking help. But like, the talent, like, what, what exactly is it about Bailey that you're just like, oh, really, this one? <laughs> you know, like, on the basis of fucking what, mate? It's unbelievable well, they, well, to it me. Makes that also like, the fact that they're staying on, no one's resigned. And it makes like Nick Timothy yeah. like a kind of model of dignity. And honour. <laughs> and honour. Just yeah. like Nick Timothy making the long walk home. <laughs> I have failed. <laughs> I must take it on myself. And Seamus Mill is just like fucking like barring the door. Mm. <laughs> just not, not leaving. The, o- the only awesome. solution I can see would be for Blair to endorse Rebecca Longbaby. <laughs> Seriously, they wouldn't know what the fuck to do with that. They'd be like, what, what, ah, uh, uh, what, what do I do now? But he was wrong about you, right? Would you have to look? Um, we should totally do that. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good friend of the show. Yeah. I'm sure he'd do me it. Me and Tone, me and Tone will like that. <clears throat> We do have to be right. good with the, with the Corbyn guys who are thinking. And right now, yeah. there's evidence of that from especially younger members. You talk to a bunch of people in Momentum that you're like, these guys are not, they're not died in the wall sort of ideologues. These are people who are radical, who have idealism about the country. And there's a, plenty of them out there right now thinking, questioning themselves. Other people online, they are there. And instead, the, the natural instinct is to go like, so obviously tear out your, if you fucking have hair, is to tear out your hair and just be like, well, why were you not? Or maybe, maybe just four years ago, you could have asked if someone that actually likes the IRA is a great candidate for a British general election. But like, but there's no point doing that, you know? And of course the instinct is there, but there's no point doing that. If someone is questioning, if they're open, fucking yeah. reach out and support, give them some help there because those are the ones we can work with, not the ones that are just fossilized into gray slabs of shite. Fuck them. <laughs> but the ones that are thinking, we can work with them. You can really tell, even over the last few days, just from Definitely. people's tweets, you can tell who's kind of thinking and who isn't. Yeah. Um, Roz, the traditional Labour coalition, um, can that be reassembled if you're trying to get the kind of, you know, the sort of the new urban heartlands? And I am trying to get away the idea that heartlands only consists of white people in the north. And that actually Hackney <laughs> is a Labour heartland. So they're kind of the, the, the urban, urban heartlands and then the kind of lost red wall. I honestly, I'd never heard the phrase red wall before. I don't know why everyone's using it now, but, but I'm going to use it. Um, they seem to be poles apart kind of, kind of culturally. Whoever is leader is going to have to try and build either, rebuild that coalition or build a different coalition. Because, I mean, basically, the, the Tories won every single social group right down to the, the DEs. Um, so, I mean, where does the Labour's coalition come from? Well, can I start by saying, you know, counterintuitively perhaps, that um, it is a good thing that uh, there are not so many safe seats. Okay, it's not a good thing that they're a Tory now, but it is a good thing nonetheless that there are not complacent MPs sitting there thinking that they're all naturally going to be re-elected next time because they won't be thinking that. And that will be... Health- insofar as it's possible to have a healthy outcome from first past the post... Um, <laughs> which is difficult, um, then, then that, is a, that is a good out- outcome. Can you get together, I mean, a coalition? Yeah, I mean, it's t- basically you're talking about who can, who can cut through and really appeal to people regardless of their gender, their 
uh, where they come from, their background, all that sort of thing. And yeah, that is something that Labour is going to wrestle with um, and is really going to struggle to do. And it's going to have to, 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 it's not going to realise, I think, necessarily that the answer is not full stop, someone from the North. The answer is not a woman you know, full stop, because it's not necessarily any of those things. It's somebody who has the ability to speak to people in a way that Corbyn didn't, and to reach through. I mean, for, yeah. to, for my money, that's Jess Phillips. Uh, but then I would say that. Um. Yeah, it, it's funny that when, they, when, when you have people talking about the runners and riders and the leadership, the, the sort of talent, like in any other job in the world, you would consider talent. Uh, and I asked on... <laughs> Twitter, I was like, well, what is... And it was a genuine question. I was like, what's Rebecca Long-Bailey good at? Well, what are her strengths? What, why is she leadership material? Load responses. Couldn't, nobody could tell me anything. Basically, people were just going, well, she's, she's a loyal Corbynite. She's a woman. She's from the North. And no one outside the Labour uh, Party, pretty much, apart from perhaps uh, a thousand people, has ever heard of her. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not a, a fact. It's not a talent, being from the North. It's no. great. That, it's no. good. <laughs> Um, Labour Labour have to stop thinking about the Labour Party when they choose a leader. They have to start thinking about everybody, not just the Labour Party. And that is how they will cut through when they stop being so tribal. And, I mean, how permanent do you think the loss of those northern seats are? Because, like like you said, you know, Labour lost eight times as many votes over the country as the Tories gained. Many of the results are pretty tight. A lot of these seats are now marginals. Brexit and Corbyn won't be factors in 2024. The economic impact of Brexit, which, as Alex suggested, might not be great, probably will be a factor. So do you see this as like a kind of a sort of permanent shit? I mean, I heard, I heard on the Today programme someone referring to the new Tory heartlands. So you've literally just won them, sometimes by a whisker. You know, that's not what heartlands means. Like I said, it does not just mean white people in the north. Um, so do you do you feel that those are kind of that those could be could be got back Completely. in different circumstances? Completely. If there is, and I'm sorry to put it down on everyone, if there is a recession, as I expect there to be in the next couple of years, um, and if Johnson screws up as much as I'm expecting him to screw up, absolutely, those seats are there for the taking by a decent Labour leader. There is nothing to say that they have gone Tory forever. Absolute rubbish. Uh, Alex, you rejoined the Labour Party at the weekend. I did. Could we just... Uh, I don't know if we can get the lights up. I rejoined, we... actually, at, at 10.30 in the morning on Friday. Wow. Could we have a show of hands? Has anyone else rejoined the Labour Party or joined for the first time? It's good. Good, it's good, good entryist good action. Smattering. More, 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 please. <laughs> and if you, if you find it unpalatable to rejoin the Labour Party or join the Labour Party, incidentally, you can join the Fabian Society which is an affiliated uh, body, gives you voting rights and costs the same money and you get to go to their conferences and stuff like that. So, so if you can't bring yourself to do it, um, there are side... Does Seamus Mill know that? Because <laughs> if, he, he, if well, he does... He will <laughs> fuck you up. He, they, they, yeah, they can't disaffiliate the Fabian Society. That'd be quite... Um, well, there's a lot... Of there's obviously talk of the, you know, the continuity Corbynism versus the dreaded centrists. Um, but then there's also quite a lot of, uh, of sort of blue labour talk to, to sort of win back some of the, the souls of the earth racists. And I... 
I, I saw one former Labour MP um, listing irrelevant metropolitan indulgences, uh, such as climate change. Um, and so it seems like, do you, do you feel that that's going to be, there's a lot of noises being made across the sort of spectrum at the moment. Do you think that's going to be a really a powerful argument, that kind of, that, that sort of blue Labour argument? Um, I, I don't mean, think it matters. I well, don't, don't think, think it matters affect, and I don't think it makes a difference. You don't think it'll affect who becomes No, I, I genuinely, I've, I've come to the conclusion that elections are about a narrative. If you get your narrative right, you get elected. If you get it wrong, you don't get elected. It's as simple as that. I don't think there is anything that the Tories could have done to prevent Tony Blair from winning in 1997. It was his time, you know, it, he put together this narrative that was unstoppable, that it was time for change. Um, Boris Johnson put this, let's get it done, and then we can move on to all this great stuff that I have. And that was ultimately irresistible without a counter-narrative. And Labour didn't have a counter-narrative. So I think when the time comes, all these things are fiddling around the fringes. What you need in the middle, in the center of it, and why I think momentum is problematic, even the thinking um, members of it, it's, it's because they object to um, a party being led top-down. But that is the efficient thing for a party to be. Um, if you don't have a strong, charismatic leader in the center that can talk to the media without dismissing them like a fucking religious education teacher that, that's been annoyed by people making noise at the back. You know, a lot of, lot of and then expect trauma good coverage. <laughs> you know, and then expect, expect them to give him good coverage yeah. and getting annoyed that they're not giving them good coverage. Labour have treated media like shit for three well, years. I, they are actual people. Well, I did have people going sort of like, well, what do you, who, who's, you know, what do you want? Do you want a centrist? And I was like, literally, it will start with not shit. <laughs> like, I honestly feel like, could be, like, not shit. Like, someone that can do an interview. But that's it, let me finish. Like, just, just like someone that can just not just keep saying mad shit <laughs> about kind of Russia or ISIS. Yeah. Do you know, just like, just real fucking baby steps. So, to answer your question, I think all that stuff is really minor little notes in, in, in a big, big concerto. Yeah. The public know what they want and know when they see it. They may get it wrong occasionally, but they make their judgment quickly. They will look at this new person who will take over Labour, and they will either see that person walking into number 10, or they never will. And unfortunately, it's as basic as, as that, and that's the way it works. You look at the polls um, in 1994, 1995, they went like that. He basically won the election within six weeks of taking over the Labour Party. You, you look at elections, that's how it works. A new leader takes over, and the public take to him or her. And yeah. that's just the way it is. Well, before, just to wrap up then, does anyone, I mean, I know it's sort of early days, does anyone have a favourite then? Is, Ros, would it be Jess Phillips for you? Yeah, it would. It would. Uh, Ian? Yeah, it's Jess Phillips for me too, but I want, um, 
I do want Keir Starmer or Yvette Cooper, but I prefer it to be Keir Starmer in the deputy leadership position because I want... Basically, you're looking for someone who has authenticity and a sense of radicalism and a character that people want to see more of in the leadership position. And then I want like a fucking parliamentary trench warfare motherfucker to just destroy them in Westminster. And that's going to be Keir Starmer. Um, I'm not going... I don't actually have a favourite yet, but I am actually looking forward to kind of the debate around it. I think that Lisa Nandy, who... I mean, she's not even... She's not even a Remainer. Um, and yet, seems like a good person. I don't know, it's weird. Um, but I mean... But, but she... But, you know, the, the work that she's been doing on towns and whatever, if you just remove the whole Brexit issue, you know, does seem very interesting. She does actually seem to be thinking about these long-term structural problems in a way that others haven't. Now, whether or not I think she'd be the best leader, I don't. I have no idea yet. But I would be very interested... And I think there are going to be some people that you're going to be interested to, to hear from what are their actual thoughts about the future of Labour and other people, like Richard Bergen, where you may not <laughs> be as interested in his thoughts. Um, Alex, quickly, what would yours be? Um, I like Jess Phillips. I think it's too soon for her. I think she needed a little bit of experience in the shadow yeah. cabinet, to be honest. I think it'll be too big a leap, and I'm not sure she can handle it. But uh, maybe I'll be proved Well, a better wrong. shadow cabinet, I mean, that's the thing. It's just, uh, there's a lot of talented people out there that just haven't been let in. Yeah. I think there are people like, say, Bridget Phillipson, who's, been, who's written some really fantastic, thoughtful sort of stuff. I think Bridget is... Um, is and it's just, why are these good. people not more prominent? Yeah. So whoever's the leader... You I, just I mean, I, w I would go for Keir Starmer, actually. Okay. Because I think the next leader needs to steady the ship and uh, sort of get us into a good position, not necessarily take us to the next election. So I'd go for Keir Starmer right away as an interim leader for a year so that he can hammer Johnson in PMQs week after week, take him apart <laughs> forensically, and then maybe look further on at a grooming a more long-term person. When we say Labour, you're saying we because you've been a member of the Labour Party for the last few days. But well, to, to be honest, <laughs> Some people... to be honest, I've been a member of the Labour Party for the past 25 years. I just left no, briefly I know, I know, I know. in disgust. I, I kid because I love. Yeah. Um, but some people here, of course, maybe, maybe Liberal Democrats, is it, I mean, uh, Leila Moran seems like, I don't know, it's just because she was really nice when she came into the podcast. Um, <laughs> I love but she your complex like... leadership assessments. I'm You're like, like, number one, not shit. Number two, be have all you, right when you have come Have you up. come into and do, did on our podcast? Joe Swinson didn't do our podcast, and look what happened to her. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying Layla Moran for, for the Lib Dems. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, You're going with that, are you? Good. So before we, we got the break coming up, uh, so we're just going to have a very quick time to dig into our emergency fun rations again with more Leave or Remain. This time it's Ross's turn, and her very serious category is foodstuffs. <laughs> Brilliant. Greg's steak bake. Well, that's, that's pretty leavey, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you can't deny. Um, that's red wall. That's, that's red wall, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's northern. It's Greg's northern. red wall steak bake. I like a steak bake. Uh, Greg's vegan sausage roll. That's an interesting one, actually, because, you know, it's Greg's, so it's kind of down to earth. But at the same time, I've tried the, the, the vegan sausage roll, and it's very sausagey. It's so sausagey that you really, you know, you, it's hard to distinguish between the 
that stuff, whatever it is, and real, <laughs> and real sausage. In fact, I couldn't do it, you know, blindfold or under any circumstances. So I reckon it's kind of Norway option. Because <laughs> for as far as most people are concerned, there's not much difference between Remain and the Norway option. And, and, and yeah, yeah. That, that's where I would Good go. old British fish and chips. Ah, fish and chips, Fish yeah. is very, it's a very Brexity issue. No, but, you know, fish and chips is very, it's not very modern, is it? It's, it's, not, it, it's, not, it's not very delivery. When I see those, all those Just Eat ads, they don't have fish and chips on them, do they? They always have curries and and, and It doesn't stir-fries. travel well. It doesn't travel well. So I, I think <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite leavy, but, but in a very, very socially conservative way. <laughs> The Yorkie Bar, invented in Yorkshire, hence the name, but owned by the Swiss. The Yorkie Bar is not for girls, isn't it? I remember, I remember not buying... Not anymore. You can't say that now, apparently. You can't say it. <laughs> People get all offended. I remember Triggered. buying loads... It's it was political my... correctness gone mad! It was my chocolate bar of choice when it was that slogan because I deliberately bought it just to wind up news agents, which shows you what kind of student I was. And... <laughs> And because it's not for girls, and because, you know, it, it connotes people who drive JCBs through polystyrene blocks, um, then I think it's pretty leafy. In fact, I think it's almost just get us out. Yeah. Uh, you have left us no food. <laughs> haggis. It's all leave. Sorry. Haggis. Oh, haggis is remain. Obviously. Because it's, it's Scottish National Party, isn't it? Yeah. It's totally Scottish National Party, so it's, it's completely... Yorkshire remain. pudding. I love Yorkshire pudding so much that it can't be anything but remain. Sorry. It's leave. We all know it. it's leave. No, no, it's remain. It's and Britain's favourite dish, the chicken tikka masala. <laughs> um, I think it's um, just basically the, the, the default British posture, which is just get it over with. Just get it done. <laughs> Don't care how. Late at night, just need it. Just need the curry. Just get it done. <laughs> Get dinner done. Yeah. That's the end of part one. We're going to have a 15-minute break for a drink. Uh, you can buy some amazing commemorative merchandising to uh, <laughs> remember the good old days. Uh, there are special discounts. <laughs> um, we'll see you back in here for... We'll see you back here in a quarter of an hour uh, for a special treat. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming down tonight. We have something very special for you as uh, loyal listeners. You may have seen them on uh, BBC's One Show. You may have heard them on the World Service. They're tonight making their live debut, performing selections from their album, The Hustle, a Brexit disco symphony. (laughs) Nothing makes the bad times better than disco. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to activate Article 54. I hope you weren't expecting Jarvis Cocker or something. <laughs> uh, it's a real honour to be doing this because there's only two things that kept me sane during 2019. One of them was the Romaniacs podcast and the other one was writing a, uh, a Brexit disco album. So we're just going to do two songs for it. Just the five of us, top of the pop style. Uh, the first song, I'm afraid, begins with the voice of Liam Fox. 
for which we all apologise. If you think about it, you know, the free trade agreement that we will have to come to with the European Union should be one of the easiest in human history.
Just one more. Uh, this is a song about how uh, a prime minister told us that our freedom of movement was a terrible thing. How dare she?
ensures that we all end to free movement once and for all. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Ladies and gentlemen, Article 54. Disco will never die. And neither segue will the cast of Romaniacs. Romaniacs people, please return to the stage. Can I just take this? I'm not going to fucking dance. <laughs> <laughs> You do not want that. I know you think you do. You do not. (laughs) Dancing guns. Oh, come on, fuck off. (laughs) Thank you to Article 54. Ian will not dance, but he will do his final ever round of Leave or Remain. Oh, thank fuck. Was this, in a very real way, the highlight of the past year? (laughs) Ian, your your category, both uh, entertaining and educational, is fictional towns and cities. Yeah. Doesn't matter which country they're in, obviously. Uh, Your towns and cities are Gotham City from Batman. Yeah, well, big, big city, but... I mean, all you ever see of it is, like, rich people at charity galas or poor people stabbing someone. So I'm going to go leave. I think it's leave. Good old Emmerdale. Where? Emmerdale. <laughs> I don't know, you care about fucking... the northern heartlands. <laughs> is that what that is? I've heard of it. It's fucking just some North London fucking country bumpkin... Who shagged my sister? Who shagged his husband? Soap place. Yes. Leave. Right, exactly. Uh, the blue-collar heartland of Bedrock from the Flintstones. I mean, I know you'd think, you'd think it would be leave, but they're quite progressive in a way, aren't they? they they've invented cars, which rely on feet, but nevertheless, and like, hoovers and stuff. All our cars will rely on feet soon enough. <laughs> It's a vision of our beautiful Brexit future. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's Remain, yeah. I think they're yeah. quite forward-looking. Vice City from the Grand Theft Auto games. So my main memory of Vice City is I remember in uni going up to my mate's room in our house, and he was sat in the dark. And I was like, what are you playing? And he's like, um, Grand Theft Auto. And I'm like, oh, so what have you done? He's like, well, like, I shot this bloke, and now I've gone to the top of a building, and I'm snipering the paramedics. And I was just like... Fucking hell, man. And I, was, I went full Keith Baz. Like, I was just like, video games are evil and must yeah. be banned. Uh, like the, so it's leave. I think it's leave. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Moz Eisley Spaceport, the wretched hive of scum and villainy from Star Wars. Uh, yeah, scum and villainy. It's, it's leave. Yeah. Fulchester from Billy the Fish in Viz. I mean, they're all leaves. Okay, yeah, but it is leave. I mean, it's like, you know, Roger Melly, the man off the tech. It's leave, isn't it? It's a leave. Yeah, Labour have really lost touch. <laughs> with, with people Billy like the Billy the Fish. Yeah. Uh, Springfield from The Simpsons. Hmm, I think Remain, I think it's a kind of Winchester-y, kind of Remain-y sort of thing, you know, suburban, quite, you know, people, yeah, people doing all right. I think, I think it's Remain, only just though, but I think it's Remain. 
Okay, and Mega City One from 2000 AD. Well, now, for those of you who don't know about Mega City One, <laughs> it's the Judge Dredd City, and it has no democracy, obviously, but the one time that they gave them some democracy, because it's a British comic and just relentlessly cynical, they elected a chimpanzee as mayor. <laughs> so I think it's leave. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ian. Um, talking of futuristic dystopias, uh, our final topic, the 2020s. Um, what have we learned from the low dishonest decade that's just coming to a well-deserved end, and how will that knowledge serve us in the decade to come? We've asked each of our panellists to predict something that will shape things in the roaring 20s. But first, the lessons of the 20-teens. Roz, when future TV producers are making I Heart the 20-teens, will anyone heart the 20-teens? <laughs> um, how do you explain... I mean, the story, I suppose, if you go back to 2010, when just Labour seemed... You know, Labour seemed tired. The Tories had become this very kind of slick PR operation. Um, how do you explain the subsequent polarisation? Was it, was it really just the kind of delayed effects of the financial crisis? That's, that's a small question you posed me there, Dorian. Yeah. <laughs> explain um, the whole decade. Yeah, yeah, the entire decade, but it hasn't even finished yet. Um, yeah, I think it was the decade when we got hooked on outrage, basically. And a lot of that outrage reached us via our screens. I mean, I think culturally, the 2010s is not a bad decade. Um, you know, box set city, but it, it, lots of exciting stuff happened. That's it. But politically, clearly, it was... It was but on the plus was, side, Fleabag. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and politically, it was shit. But, 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 but culturally, it was a lot more interesting. But I mean, what we, what we saw was just the kind of the feedback loop of hatred and uh, outrage just kept accelerating. So that people said stuff that was, that was uh, pretty mildly outrageous. And then people got outraged about that. So people, so people spotted an opportunity to <clears throat> find fame for themselves by saying something even more outrageous. And they said that. And it just kept escalating and escalating like some, you know, I, 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 vortex. And, I, and it, it carried on. And now you have people saying things that were totally unimaginable that nobody in public life would have said in 2010. They say now routine and we don't even blink an eye anymore. So that, I think, is the key to the polarisation that you're talking about. Um, Ian, indulge us uh, and imagine that David Cameron had never called the referendum. Um, given, all, <laughs> given all the other factors that, that drove the Leave vote, um, how different do you think things would have been? A world with no Romaniacs? So hellish to contemplate. Um, <laughs> But, but, but how different would things have been without that? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be incredibly different because the thing is, obviously, these cultural distinctions between us within the country have been there for a while. They didn't just fucking, like, explode in 2016. What happened was a wedge issue presented itself. Now, it didn't have to be the EU. And in fact, you could basically tell by the last three years that no one really wanted to give a shit about talking about the EU, especially on the Leave side. It wasn't about that. It was about identity, who you are and what you wanted to say and trying to <clears throat> poke one in the eye of the other side. So it, the truth is, if that event hadn't happened, that would have simmered. Now, it would have still risen probably in some way on some issue. However, the really important part, and it goes back to what I said in the first place, that now they know that it works. That's the bit that does it. So it doesn't matter. There's almost no point to us sort of saying, well, would it have been all right otherwise? Blah, blah, blah. Because ultimately, they know that this stuff works. Fuck, maybe they would have picked it up from watching Salvini or Orban or Trump 
or any other one of those pound shop fascists. But they didn't. They did it by having the referendum here. So now that they know that it works, they will try it again. So it's kind of a, it's not really, there's not really much point in getting lost in what could have been. The thing has to be of seeing those signs and knowing how do we change the frame of a debate, not the answer to it, but the frame of the debate so we don't get caught in that trap all over again. Alex, we often heard, well, we started with, oh my God, it's the 70s all over again. Then it's the 30s all over again. Um, it wasn't quite that bad because it didn't end in totalitarianism and world war. So that's good. Well done us. Um, no, don't do that yet. But I mean, that was how populism ended there. That was a drastic solution to populism in the 1940s. Um, what's the kind of better solution? Do you think a few um, crucial defeats and setbacks could kind of could do the job? Trump loses next year. Um, you know, Bolsonaro doesn't win re-election and so on. Uh, f for sure that there could be a domino effect because they have all allied themselves to each other very closely. So if Trump does lose, the, it, it will be a loss felt by all of them around the world, for sure. Um, I think the thing we have to find out how to do is how to energize our allies and increase them without antagonizing them. Because all through the last few years, I get the sense that they feed on our resistance. They feed on our outrage. Um, and in many ways, we provide the energy for both our movement and theirs, which is exhausting because we are actually the perpetuum mobile that keeps their thing going. And so what we have to work out is a way that energizes us, but either ignores them or is kind to them. Because I think that would really take the wind out of their sails. Good. So be nice to fascists, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I know, I know you're not. Um, so the 2020s then. Why not? Um, <laughs> well, does being mean to fascists, has it worked for us? In the 1940s, worked quite well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I thought we were talking about not getting oh, there Oh, yeah, no, again. no, not having a war. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Oh, no, um, yeah, if it gets to that, bomb the fuckers, sure. <laughs> um, the 2020s then. Um, and this could be about, you know kind of dangers for, for Boris Johnson. It could be about anything else. What, what sort of major demographic or political event are you kind of, I wouldn't say looking forward to, perhaps saying keep an eye out for, something that people in the audience can mention sagely over Christmas and go, well, of course, you know, what we should be thinking about <laughs> is... Uh, so go on, give them some... Give them something to say. Make them sound clever. Okay. Well, I don't really know how to answer that question, so I'm going uh, to answer a different one. Um... <laughs> So it, it's got, the, the thing is that we're trapped in an identity war, right? And that's obviously what we're going to see over the next decade. We're seeing that on the left and we're seeing it on the right. The left, generally people associating very strongly with identity politics around gender, around sexuality, around race. 
and on the right, people associating very strongly on nationalism. And that's a really fucking hard conversation to get into if you don't think that that's the manner that politics is supposed to be conducted in. That you think mostly about the individual being free to select their own identity if they want to. I think if we're going to have any success, we have to be able to participate in that conversation without accepting the terms of that conversation. And that's a distinction between the kind of identity that someone freely chooses that is a love story, whether that's patriotism or something to do with your race or your sexuality or your gender on one side, and the one that is imposed on you by people that are quite authoritarian on either side of that are going, if you are gay, you are X. If you are a woman, you must have the following politics. If you are British, you must be the following things, typically right wing and an imbecile. <laughs> now, we have to fight that, the straight jacket of identity. And we fight it by having our own story about identity, which is freedom enhancing, which is a love story, which is the love story that you find by the parts of yourself that you choose to reflect and the meaning that you find in it. And if we can find that conversation, if we can have it, if we can feel it, we've got a fighting chance. And if we don't, we're in a lot of fucking trouble. <clears throat> Rod, something you think will shape the 2020s? Well, as I said earlier, first of all, we're going to have a recession. Don't know how long it'll last. But I think the real danger is that we stop fighting and that we become so horrified by this spectacle of Johnson and everything else that we disengage. And I think there's a kind of risk of what you call, what I like to call, techno-nostalgia. So it is going to be possible, it is going to be very perfectly possible to spend more time, more and more time in virtual worlds in the coming years. And those worlds, people may well choose worlds that are in the past, where they feel comfortable, where they feel that they're getting away from the current hideousness of British politics. And that is what we absolutely have to avoid, because it is an instant, you know, you see Twitter and you think, I, I just can't. I can't bear this. I, do, I just want, it, want to get away. I want to get away. I want to escape this. And I, that kind of sentiment is very understandable, but we have to really fight against it. It's the same kind of thing that makes some people, some environmentalists, go and live in mid Wales and, you know, go, go and live on, 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 on self sufficient farms. Um, and that's great for them, and they may well be enjoying it, but it's not actually making a hell of a lot of difference uh, to anything. And. Um, what we have to do is actually re-engage if we possibly can and not cut ourselves off and not say, this is so shit. Because I've seen that starting to happen in Hungary where we had Storban, where people think, there's no place for me in public life. There's no difference I can make. There's nothing I can do. Um, that is not true. At least it is not yet true. And we don't have to be afraid here of participating in public life. We can all get together. We are here. We are free. We are free to say whatever the hell we like about Boris Johnson. And that is a great liberty that we still have. And we must take advantage of it. So we have to keep on fighting and not succumb to that negativity and just disgust. Alex, the next decade. The re-emergence of the city-state. A, a Greek inevitability, I'm afraid. Um, I'm deadly serious. I think there is a limit to the extent where the millions of people who are gathered in urban centers and 
produce the economic product that subsidizes the rest of the country, incidentally, and are made up of some wealthy people, but mostly not wealthy people, and some of the very poorest people, I think there's a limit to the extent they will have constantly governments imposed on them that they didn't vote for, and at the same time be insulted for it. Um, and I think the time will come, just as it has with Scotland, because I think much of the Scottish independent movement is built on this idea that we keep voting for one thing and getting another. That has been the strongest argument for Scottish independence. And the longer it goes on, the more the case is unanswerable. And I think that will begin to emerge for urban centers as well. Whether that happens with much more devolution or whether it happens with actually London going, I'm going to twin myself with Paris. I have much more in common with them. Fuck you. We'll buy your cabbages and... You know, you can. Is you that can your idea of being food? generous? Well, no. I'm not, I'm not saying this as a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not advocating this. I just think it will happen. I just think the um, the number of people so disproportionately. You know, you get I think something like a hundred and ten thousand people electing each MP in London, where you have constituencies where you get twenty thousand people electing mm. an MP. And they bitch at us about it, that somehow we control the universe. While, as I said, our economic product and our tax is subsidizing them. And I think there is a limit to the patience urban centers will show with that situation. And I think in the next 10 years, you will see cities saying, well, I want more autonomy. I want to set wow. my own taxes. I want to have my own agenda. Hardcore. I'm glad you're wearing the, the antlers. I'm glad the, the Emperor of London. They totally sell it. Uh, the show's almost over. It's time for my last ever Leave or Remain, which is the last ever yes. Leave or Remain. God, I've got your... I've got your so, oh, that shit. <laughs> it's been preposterous. It is a historic moment. Stop it. So your category, Dorian, is... Novelists of the past. Uh, we know what today's writers think about Brexit, but what would the following people think if they were transplanted into our time? Charles Dickens. 19th century liberal, into people, you know, the great swimmer things, humanitarian. I'm going to have to press you for an Remain, answer. remain, yes. Jane Austen. Uh, like, sort of Tory Remainer. Oh, I can see that. Not keen on pride or prejudice. <laughs> the two main drivers of Brexit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Kind of like Heidi Allen. Oh, yes, I can see that. I like that. Ian Fleming. Uh, sort of buccaneering racist. Uh, who sees the rest of the world as sort of England's playground. I'm so guessing. Leave. Yes. Enid Blyton. Like, fully, fully, fully leave. Not even kind of dog whistling. <laughs> Just like, full-on, racist toy town leave. Virginia Woolf. Remainer, but the kind... Oh, they like that one. The, 
<laughs> the kind of Remainer that kind of embarrasses other Remainers. Oh, yeah. That just sort of like phrases it in the worst, like most snobbish, misanthropic way. Knit, knits EU flag sweaters for her dog. <laughs> I can see Don't that. Don't want to be, on her placard on the march, you'd just be like, oh, not that. Don't put it that way. <laughs> Graham Green. Uh, freedom of movement. Uh, Britain finding a post-imperial role in the world. I think he'd be Remain, but Pinky from Brighton Rock would, <laughs> would be Dominic Cummings' protégé. <laughs> Barbara Cartland. <laughs> I mean... I mean... I mean... Leave, but kind of sexy leave. <laughs> Just like a, a big manly shirts-off lever. Ravishing. A Remainer. Winning, winning her round. That, that, that's enough, thank you. <laughs> Kingsley Amos. Well, he was a hard left Eurosceptic who became a Tory Eurosceptic and delighted in upsetting Martin and his fancy friends, like <laughs> Ian and Julian and Salmon. So he would be like a lever just for like, he'd be like a human shit post. <laughs> just, just to wind everyone up. And that concludes our very last. I, I find it amazing that people have such strong opinions about all the writers. They and did. if I can get one last dig against Leavers, <laughs> if this was a Leave gig, they'd be going like, who? Who? <laughs> who? That's the sort of thing Virginia Woolf would say. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we only have, we don't have time for that many questions, but we will try and, um, we'll try and fit in uh, a couple. Um, well, there's one. We've got a hard out tonight. Right, is it on? Right, you, your hand went up quickly. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, enjoyed tonight brilliantly. Thank you ever so much for keeping us sane, like everybody else has said. Quick question. This is obviously the time of populism. How come their populist slogan worked and our bollocks the Brexit didn't? People don't like swearing. Ian, explain why people don't like swearing. <laughs> doesn't work I, mean, I quite like that slogan <laughs> but then I'm not necessarily representative of the rest of the country there were people by the way that were just like I mean it was up outside of children's schools which actually again would have encouraged me to vote Lib Dem but for most other people would think that there's something wrong with that quite cleanly so actually it wasn't used that well but then also that slogan didn't fit with the rest of the proposition that the Lib Dems are putting forward, which is we're oh so central, we're sensible, we're moderate, we're centrist. It's like, oh, I'm fucking bollocks, mate. It's like, oh, but we're very... And you just think, like, it's just completely schizophrenic. So it, it doesn't really... Yeah, so it wasn't a very good slogan. It doesn't necessarily mean that the fundamental thing that you can't translate liberal, sophisticated political ideas that are truthful into easily understood slogans that is still the fucking way forward. In fact, that might be one of them. That's the fucking way forward. <laughs> it can the be Lib done. Lib Dems, mm. the it's fucking way forward. <laughs> you heard it here tonight. Yeah. One for Leila Moran there. Uh, next. I'd also like to um, give my thanks to the whole Romaniacs cast for keeping me sane as much as that goes. 
Um, I have a question. The first thing I want to say is, if you haven't read it, there's a brilliant, brilliant novel by Anna Ziegers, published in 1942, about life under totalitarianism in Germany before the war. It's a very, very interesting read. And I am afeard that we may be going that way. So sorry about the reference to 1930s. Um, and my question is, have we heard the last of Nigel Farage? You want me to take this one? Well, yeah, if you've got, yeah. No. <laughs> um, I mean, no, he, he personifies a certain strand of English, of, of what we think of as Englishness that people are quite attached to. And he is going to stay around because he is going to carry, uh, carry on preventing Boris Johnson from going for any kind of liberal, bre uh, you know, more, more softer Brexit. That is his function in life. It is constantly to bait the Tory party. And that is something he will continue doing. No, we, we have not seen the last of Nigel Farage. And not least, this is not least, because basically the BBC and all the other channels just keep inviting him on. They could decide not to. They could decide now that we're going to be leaving, you know, we're effectively out of the European Parliament, that he no longer has a public role. But they will not decide that, um, unfortunately, because when it comes to Eurosceptics, the general level of articulacy and debate is so low that Nigel Farage really raises the bar. And that's why he keeps... <laughs> That's why he keeps being invited on, because no matter what shit he talks, he can still talk. Uh, so you, you can't expect, I'm sorry, to see, have seen the last of him. Um, so uh, I just wanted to, because you guys gave uh, a good answer of what we should do next, kind of find small issues of why we uh, supported Remain in the first place and concentrate on those ones. But uh, what about those of us who just support and remain because we're super patriotic, we love our country, we love the people in our country, and we think they have a better place in the world, and actually these small issues don't quite fit that for us. I want you to give us a better answer. <laughs> Do you want to pass the microphone to the man next to you as well? <laughs> he might give us a fucking better question. I mean, to be honest, yes, Alex, sir, we're listening. Alex does want independence for London, which is a pretty bold <laughs> move. I didn't say I wanted it. Anyway, what's your question? Let's take them. Shall we take them in, in threes like Corbyn? Go on. <laughs> Do go on. Um, so I hate to ask a hypothetical question, but earlier on we were talking about uh, how Corbyn and Swinson wouldn't work together given how unpopular Corbyn was on the doorstep and the voters that Lib Dems were going after, even if they did go for a, a um, you know, they did decide to work together, do we think that actually would have cut through? This is totally a Naomi question, by the way, and she's not here. I, <laughs> no, because I was thinking about this, and there was really, the really strong reasons is that a lot of the people that the Lib Dems needed to reach, and in fact did reach, just couldn't stand Corbyn. And so many of the problems, I hate to be all kind of, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but, you know, there were so many things that just weren't going to happen. So a government national unity wasn't going to happen with him. Tory Remainers weren't going to side with him. Uh, the Lib Dems weren't going to make a pact with him. It was just like he was great for his base and he was terrible for any of the... You know, and I, and I do think people sometimes forget that Labour and Lib Dem are separate parties. <laughs> I know Simon Jenkins wrote a column today going, well, the Lib Dems just, like, merge with, like, give up and merge with <laughs> Labour. 
as if they're just kind of like just a different, you know, Labour light. It's like they are actually a different party with different beliefs. And so I do, I feel like we just had a lot of fantasies. And justly so, because we thought, oh, well, this might work. But it involved imagining that they were completely different parties. And the only way I think it would have remotely conceivable was if you actually had a very sort of popular centrist Labour leader. And then you think, well, maybe they wouldn't need to <laughs> make a deal with the Lib Dems. So... Let me quickly Can deal we... with uh, your question, the guy that's disappointed in us. Um, so, <laughs> uh, like, so honestly, it's, it's not an either-or. So there's three levels that our action should take place. Okay, number one is structural. And the first thing to do, which is basically what is going on in the country, the great macro politics you're alluding to. Now on that, I'm sorry, it's not nice, it's not pretty, it makes me feel stinky, but the first thing to do is fucking join the Labour Party get involved in that leadership election. When it's over, get the fuck out if you want to. Doesn't matter, just get in there. There's gotta be an opposition. If there's no opposition in this country, no matter what your politics, the country cannot operate. We've seen what happens for five years with no opposition. It is imploding on itself. That cannot be allowed to continue. Is that that called doing an Ingrid? Organizational, the things that we said, and then there's your personal fight as well, which is what you do yourself, the arguments you have with people, the way you conduct yourself online when you challenge media reports without coming across as hysterical or conspiratorial, structural, organizational, personal. Those are the three levels of the fight. That's how you do this thing. And and if I can just add very, 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 very quickly, um, just because it's small doesn't mean it doesn't have a big impact. You tweeting won't dethrone Trump. It won't fix the climate issue, but you becoming a counsellor might if another thousand people do the same thing. So that, I think, is the point. To create a mosaic of progressives. Exactly. Well, during the break, I, I bumped into someone. He said, it's not as depressing as I thought it would be. Which is <laughs> it's some, something I've heard on many a night out. Um, <laughs> And, and it's good, and we didn't want it, we, you know, we wanted to make the best of things. Um, it's, it's the end of the show, it's not the end of Romaniacs. Keep your eye on your podcast apps over Christmas. There will be something in your stocking. Um, before we go, on behalf of Roz, Alex, Ian, as well as Naomi Smith, Ingrid Oliver, Nina Schick, Ben from Led by Donkeys, Andrew Harrison, old school legend Peter Collins, producer Alex Reese, and business brain Martin Bajitos, I'd like to thank everybody here, and everybody listening to the podcast. Uh, and everyone who backs us on Patreon for your support so far. Um, when we started, like I said, this was 2017, wasn't it, for the election, yeah. And I saw our role really as journalistic, uh, sort of just analysing what was happening. We ended up becoming sort of part of a movement, uh, which is very inspiring and moving, and we really saw that at the live shows. But because we didn't have a leader or a party line, and, you know, there are always disagreements between Remainers as well, what I valued most of all, I think, is listeners readiness to take in the sort of full range of opinions even when you didn't necessarily agree um didn't like it when you complained on twitter but there we go um but we did feel like it was a kind of that we weren't just pushing one line that within this general idea of we would like to remain in the european union please uh we were able to discuss all kinds of issues we felt free to be ourselves and our audience really gave us the freedom so we had a community but we didn't have any pressure to pander to that community and i think that's a very rare Thing. And even though this period is a low for everything we care about, wow, that was bleak. So <laughs> rewritten that bit. For some of the things that we care about, uh, we'll keep going because of you. We'll get through it somehow uh, together. Uh, we love you all. Thank you very much.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Give it up for the cast of Romaniacs, or 50% of them. We may be here again sometime. Who knows? Thank you for your backing. And a happy Christmas and a happy New Year. <laughs>